0: It's time now for the complete story of public news and information feature of BOT Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich BOT, with today's complete story.
1: I tell you what, folks, father and son are a team, but Rich is out of the city right now. So I'm I'm flying solo again, and uh, we're just going to have a very serious uh, time Of thinking and talking and considering. However, uh, I think it would be good to start out with an old hymn, one that I think most of you probably would remember singing in church, and it's always a good one. It sure stuck in my heart. Uh, Here it is, Since Jesus Came Into My Heart.
0: BE SINCE ONWARD I GO SINCE JESUS CAME INTO
1: I tell you what, folks. If that doesn't put a little pep in your step, <laughs> that's a good. One. That's an oldie too. Now uh, we're going to get on with the program. You see, uh, here's something else I want you to know. This weekend, October twenty-second, nineteen thirty-three. That's eighty-eight years ago. My mother and I had a parting of the ways. <laughs> Well, what I really mean is it was 88 years ago on October 22nd that I was born. And so this is my 88th birthday. But uh, isn't that a thought? We had a parting of the ways. Uh, And I imagine she was relieved and, and I was glad to get on my way also, such as it was. But here's the meaning of all of that. When does human life begin? That's such a basic question. I don't know how much thinking you've done about it. I know most everyone has an opinion, but how much have you really thought about it? So when we're talking about abortion, we're not talking about a tonsillectomy or anything of that sort. When does the life of a human being begin? Listen to this.
2: You're in a conversation about abortion, and someone says, Human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. What would you say? It's easy to say life doesn't begin at conception because an embryo doesn't look like what we think people should look like. But we know human life begins at some point. Here are a few things to remember while you think about when that is. First, life doesn't begin at birth. It isn't logical to say life begins at birth because that would suggest that the baby inside the womb one day prior to birth wasn't alive. It's not reasonable to say an individual who is alive at birth is not alive one day prior to birth. The only difference is where they are. So we know life does not begin at birth. Second, life doesn't begin at viability. Many argue that human life begins once a baby can survive on her own outside the womb. But there are problems with this argument, too. After all viability changes based on technology. Today, babies can be born at 24 weeks and survive, but 200 years ago, that wasn't possible. Viability is also determined based on where you are born. Wealthy nations make things possible for babies that wouldn't be possible in a poorer country. Does that mean a 24-week baby in the United States is more alive than a 24-week baby in the jungles of the Congo? Of course not. So life must be determined by something other than viability. Third, life does not begin with the heartbeat. We know that living things only come from other living things. It wouldn't be possible then for the embryo to be non-living for the first few weeks and suddenly spring into life. So the embryo has to be alive prior to the heartbeat. Does this mean that we can be alive without a heartbeat? Yes, That's actually what makes the newly conceived embryo more functionally impressive than a born person. The embryo has an ability to live, grow, and move through the stages of human development without the feature you and I need to continue our growth and development. If life doesn't begin at birth, viability, or heartbeat, when does it begin? Life begins at conception, fertilization, At fertilization, a living mother and father give life to a whole living organism, genetically distinct from his or her mother and father. No, the embryo doesn't look like everyone else, but aren't we past the idea that someone has to look a certain way before they are considered human? Think of it like a Polaroid picture. Initially, all you will see are black smudge marks. The moment the photo is taken, however, the image is captured It just needs time to develop. The same is true for you and me. The moment of sperm-egg fusion, we in our uniqueness from our parents began to exist. We just needed time to develop.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's right, folks. We just needed time to develop. From the moment of conception, my mother carried me because I needed a little time to develop somewhat, Uh, after I was born, of course. No way could I get along on my own. Somebody had to feed me, somebody had to take care of me, somebody had to care, and if it wouldn't have been my parent, would it have been an adoptive parent? I'll tell you what, in any case, I remained alive. Man, how much I thank my parents and those who made it possible for me to be able to say that 88 years uh, later. Now, many years ago, Rich and I met a lady from Illinois, Jill Stanek. And many years ago, she had been a young nurse at Christ Hospital. Now, just think about that for a minute. This is hospital named Christ Hospital. Would you suppose they protected life, cared about life? Well, not all of them. You gotta remember, choose your doctor carefully, choose your hospital carefully, choose your church carefully, choose your friends carefully. But this is what Jill Stenick said when she was a young nurse feeling she was going to have a good time in her career taking care of people who needed help. Here it is.
3: Thanks for having me, Mr. Bott. And you're absolutely right. I was a registered nurse at Christ Hospital on the southwest side of Chicago when I discovered the hospital was not only involved in late-term abortions, but that the method of abortion that the hospital used sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive and if they were aborted alive they were allowed to die in the soiled utility room without any medical intervention whatsoever so let's
1: let's just stop there then and this is the case where they intentionally intended to kill the kid and they right. failed and they failed and they failed the child lived anyway the child was alive anyway there is the child alive and well uh, not well but is surviving uh, the attempt on its life and and so this is the scene uh, that you're describing, and you were a nurse in that hospital.
3: Yes, and went to work there thinking I would be safe at a hospital named Christ from abortion because who would think? But I found out that this was going on, and then one night a nursing coworker was taking a little abortion survivor to the soiled utility room because his parents didn't want to hold him, and she didn't have time to hold him that night. And he was a 21-week baby. And when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone. And so I cradled and rocked him for the 45 minutes that he lived.
1: Now, this is um, a hospital, Christ Hospital, for goodness sakes. Is that associated with a particular church or denomination, or what is it? It's
3: affiliated with two denominations, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the United Church of Christ. Which are both pro-abortion denominations, which is something I didn't even know existed—that um, a pro-abortion church denomination uh, back in the day. But now I know that it's it's relatively prevalent.
1: So you were a young nurse in that in that ward in that hospital in that department, and so on and so forth. You probably heard whispers. You probably heard little little statements or something that you didn't quite understand or know about. Is Am I describing this approximately the way it was?
3: Well, actually, it was going on quietly in the, in the Labor and Delivery Department since 1978, and I worked in the department for a year and didn't know that it was going on all around me until one night I heard a report that we were aborting a second trimester baby, and that one also had Down syndrome, and that was the first that I heard about it. And even when the story went eventually public, um, nurses in the next department, the neonatal unit, didn't believe it. They didn't know what was going on either, so it was very hush-hush. Well, somebody
1: had to know what was going on, and the truth is what you're describing is happening across America and no more so than Planned Parenthood that, that, are, that is being supported by people's tax money. But go on. In other words, this is your bar mitzvah, as it were. This was your awakening as to what it was all about.
3: Right, I'd been personally pro-life before that time, but needless to say, I think just about anybody who held an abortion survivor, like I did for 45 minutes, would be instantly converted into a pro-life activist. And I was. And so uh, I first tried to appeal to the hospital privately to stop, and followed the mandate of Matthew 18, when Jesus, you know, when you find someone in sin, you approach them privately took back a couple of witnesses again privately, such as um, Cardinal Francis George of Chicago and Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was a pro-life surgeon general under President Reagan. He also appealed to the hospital. And when the hospital wouldn't stop, um, I went public. And this was in 1999, and I probably started talking to you not too long after that.
1: Isn't that amazing? Now, we've all heard of the Hyde Amendment, but what does it really mean? Does anyone really know... What the Hyde Amendment is all about, Nancy Pelosi, she wants to do away with it. And, of course, Chuck Schumer, all of the Democrats are united in doing away with the Hyde Amendment, as well as President Joe Biden. Let's get rid of the Hyde Amendment. Well, what is it? It's just an an amendment at that time to protect somewhat babies from being aborted at certain stages. Congressman Henry Hyde was the author, who is now deceased. Uh, I'll tell you, I could go on and on about him. He was from Illinois also, by the way. This is a speech now that Congressman Henry Hyde brought before the floor of the House of Representatives, crying out for the life of unborn children, to some extent at least. Can't we at least not be human? And uh, this is what
0: he said.
2: Mr. Speaker, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from
0: Illinois, Mr. Hyde, Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The gentleman from Illinois is recognized for 15 minutes. I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this, ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people, and it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, In his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist Raskolnikov say, man can get used to anything, the beast, that we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. We were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture and baby torture at that if we can't what's become of us we're all incensed about ethnic cleansing what about infant cleansing there's no argument here about when human life begins the child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive unmistakably human and unmistakably brutally destroyed the justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will well if you still believe that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby. And the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child or in this instance of four-fifths, born child. That child whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this house. To deny those rights is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual. It betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, was interviewed by the American Medical Association, in so doing he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies how would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure quoting dr Koop. question in your practice as a pediatric surgeon have you ever treated children With any of the disabilities cited in this debate, have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things, such as the chest being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives, in fact, The first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele much bigger than her head went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective. 80% are elective. And he admits to over a thousand of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect. Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions. He performed because the baby had a cleft lip. Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. And he said, the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity? if we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born. We all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons. Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold, the coldness of self brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia, Advocates of abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists and they said this is impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost-born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. Abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy. Because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century, is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things to be disposed of? If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and, maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter of the innocents was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror, and while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental and we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms and the queen of all euphemisms is choice as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby now we've talked so much about the grotesque permit me a word about beauty we all have our own images of the beautiful the face of a loved one, a dawn, a sunset, the evening star I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love. And a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity. When we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it, we need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate, let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. And I yield back the balance of my time.
1: Oh oh boy, our time has gone so fast, folks. Now, the Hyde Amendment was passed, and now the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi and President Biden, the whole crowd of them are trying to take it away, just obliterate it. All right, now the phone number to call our listener comment line is 1-800-345-2621, 1-800-345-2621. My son, Rich, will be back next week. This is Dick Bott with his chapter of The Complete Story as a public service. We'll see you later.